0: Welcome to Ed Influencers, a podcast from ISTI, the International Society for Technology and Education. I'm Joseph South, ISTE's Chief Learning Officer, and I'm excited to bring you interviews with members of the EdTech community who are not just innovating in education, but who are influencing nonprofits, education policy, and business, and are shaping how students learn. Dr. Gibson is on the front lines of LA Unified's efforts to transfer learning with technology. She was previously the principal at El Sereno Middle School Magnet Center, the first California gold ribbon school in East LA, where she launched the dual language program in Spanish and Mandarin. Welcome.
1: Good morning. Glad to be here.
0: You are the chief academic officer of the second largest district in the country. What does it feel like?
1: Well, that's a great question. Uh, my mom, you know, a lot of times our parents find out through social media what their children are doing. And so she asked me, what does a cow do, a chief academic officer? <laughs> and I immediately um, reframed and thought it's really about being a chief opportunity officer. How do you pull together the greatest opportunities from early education all the way to adult education, from things that might seem... Um, not as warm and fuzzy like federal state education programs, which are really meant to change the lives of at-risk students, to um, thinking about how we have good oversight of charter schools. So it really is about looking at the entire complexity and supports for all of our learners.
0: So how does a person end up in a position like yours? Or maybe a better question is, where did you start in the, in the world of education?
1: So it's been a serendipitous and, and interesting journey. Um, originally, I was planning to go to law school, and I volunteered in a classroom with Chinese immigrant youth. And I walked outside to this black box with this curly cord and put a dime in it. It's called a payphone. <laughs> <laughs> and uh used that early technology to call somebody I deeply cared about and said, I just had the most amazing experience of my life. I think I want to be a teacher. What do you think about that? And fortunately for me, the person on the other end of the line said, I think it's the most beautiful thing you could do with your life. And uh so I moved overseas and decided to become a bilingual teacher, so i in Deutschland studiert, and I was recruited to a little city called Los Angeles to be a bilingual teacher. (laughs) Um little did I know that German, uh, this is a joke of course, was not the most prevalent language in the community of Watts. So I started off as an elementary school teacher, uh, down at a great place called 107th Street Elementary.
0: And what was that school like?
1: Well, it was a very exciting time um, in Los Angeles, uh, a lot of challenges, but a lot of opportunities. This was the era of overcrowding of schools, trying to figure out what we were going to do with bilingual education. There was a lot of um, unrest in different parts of the community. And so I was really in the, the thick of it and really had opportunities to discover who I was going to be as a culturally relevant, responsive teacher, to really push some boundaries. And most importantly, I found out what it meant to be a teacher that honors voice, honors culture, and to become a very strategic reading teacher because there is no social justice if our students can't read well.
0: So, a lot of people under circumstances like that might have sort of um, shrunk in on themselves and said, "Look, I'm going to show up here every day. I'm going to do the best I can. These problems are bigger than me." And you know, gone home. Um, it doesn't sound like you took that path.
1: No, I thrived. Um, this was my passion point. Um, you know, I think that was the beginning of the journey for some of the things you've probably heard of uh, called Team Kid. Really, you know, focusing on our students and listening to their voice and then being responsive to what they need. And I was fortunate enough to just have incredible mentors who guided me along the way to help me become an even stronger facilitator of student learning.
0: So I understand that your grandmother was among the first group of women to graduate from USC Law School. Is that right?
1: That is. She was a rock star back then.
0: <laughs> um, did her story inspire you in some way?
1: There's so many different ways that her story inspired me. And um, I think actually if I digress for a moment, I go back to sixth grade and sharing that I wanted to be an astronaut. Maybe my teachers just thought I was out of this world, but um, <laughs> one of them um, unfortunately corrected me and said, you mean an astrologer? And I said, no, I'm pretty oh,
0: really clear. No. I'm a
1: Leah. Look at my personality. <laughs> but um, I remember being really upset about that. And it was interesting because remember those old school Cabbage Patch dolls that are coming back? Oh, yeah. My parents bought me an astronaut in a space shuttle to like say it's going to be okay like girls can be astronauts and I looked at it and there's a boy inside of it and I looked at my parents I said I'm never opening this until a female becomes an astronaut and truth be told I didn't
0: how old were you?
1: I was in sixth grade at the time. Wow! And uh, so, a couple years ago, we did a huge uh, women in um, STEM with uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and I gave it to the daughter of the the co founder of this project. Of course, her daughter his daughter opened it up, and the nickname of this astronaut is Dusty, by the way, because it's so old. <laughs> but um, I remember that just being a pivotal point of somebody saying that I couldn't do something related to science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And the reason that connects with my grandmother is somebody told her she couldn't be a lawyer. Uh. And so I immediately went to her and thought about what could I do? And I really thought about her as a role model. And um, so I'm just so blessed that she, I think, in her heart of hearts was probably a teacher because she always gave, whether it was to um, students who would be in today's camps or she started organizations for foster parents. Um, she just, she really was a teacher in her heart of hearts. She just didn't have the credential that said so.
0: So you talk about Team Kid and you mentioned it already. Yeah. Um, why, why do you use that phrasing?
1: Well, I think so time, so many times we can get other focused in our system. And so the first question I always ask is, is it good for kids? And we even had jerseys at our school that said, I'm on team kid. And so the thought or the, the ideation around is you put students at the center and everything you do um, is backwards planning from what they need. And over time, it's really developed into stories of leadership principles that can be incredibly complex, but um, really poignant and really thinking about how you lead when you really are focused on students and I could share a story of a, a young man one day who came to my office. He said, Gee, you know, because that sounded more cool as a middle school principal. Um, he said, Dr. G, can I talk to you? And he had made some different decisions about his life that were not healthy. And we all wrapped around him and tried to really make a difference in his life. And I remember I had a, these starfish up on my wall. And many of you know the starfish story of a youngster walking down the beach, picking him up and throwing him back in and an adult coming behind him and saying, well, there's so many you can't make a difference. And the youngster throws another one back in and says, Well, I just made a difference for that one. And so I had these little starfish all over my office. And this young man, um, after we had changed some of his challenging circumstances and was moving out of the community, he said, Miss, why do you have a loofah on your wall? <laughs> I said, You think that's a loofah after all of this? <laughs> you know, and I just kind of giggled at at his response. And I said, Well, Let me tell you the story of the starfish. And I'm having this like, you know, out of life experience of how I've just changed um, the life of this young man. And it's this proud principal moment. And so I say to him, I go, well, who are you in that story? And he says, oh, miss, I'm not your starfish. You're mine. And the tears just poured out of my eyes because, again, it was just that reminder that it's our students who are our greatest teachers. And so Team Kid is really about all those stories that we learn from our students when we really, really listen.
0: So you work in probably one of the most diverse districts in the country. Is that fair?
1: I would think that's a pretty fair statement. Over 94 languages, um, 84% of our students are in poverty, and yet we have some of the, the wealthiest places in the country within our district as well.
0: So how is that a challenge and how is that a strength?
1: Well, in our district, we always refer to... Um, the statement that diversity is our strength. And in fact, it is. Being in Los Angeles and and really the extended suburbs around the community and the many counties that come into play, you know, L.A. is the world recognized earlier. So when L.A. gets it right, the world thrives. So we were always thinking about what's the interconnectedness around what we're doing for children, what we're learning. You know, this year we've opened up over 141 dual language campuses. You know, when you start getting that type of honoring of students' background and their language, and then you connect it to things like Link Learning where students are getting industry certifications and and working with the the thought leaders and the movers and shakers of industry in their own backyard, you know that the complexity of all these opportunities are really coming together for you.
0: So, is there a way to pull in those more wealthy parts of the county with the less well off? Is it you know? So, I, I guess I see a lot of school districts who you know they, they focus on the. The children with the greatest need, which is appropriate, but the children who are doing okay over there, they sort of just leave alone. Do you um, do anything to bring them together?
1: Well, we're always doing a both and strategy and, you know... All of our students are our students. So we embrace our students and really think about what does each individual community need? And in California, we have what's called a local control funding formula. And part of those efforts is to one, call out issues of equity around how we target student supports, you know, for our students in poverty, for our foster youth, for our English learners. How do we amplify and accelerate those opportunities? And also, how do we take, um, the strengths of our students, uh, let's say our gifted learners and our highly gifted learners. And one of the things, for example, we've really been strategic about is looking at our African American students and how we really reach out to families and have them connected to these programs and link to universities. And so in a local control funding formula environment or a local control design, um, mindset, you're really saying, what does the community need? And how do we accelerate those outcomes? So there has to be a both and strategy, never an either or strategy.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'd like to talk a little bit about technology in your district. You know, there's leaders in your position who might say, I've got enough on my plate. I don't need to complicate my world with technology. Sure, it might make a difference, but wow, just I've got too much else to do. What What's your uh, approach to that?
1: Well, it's interesting the way you frame that question. Um, at the time, I was the superintendent of local district East, and I had over over 100 schools I was responsible for. And at that time, Superintendent Cortinas came to me, um, lovingly referred to as America's superintendent. He had his third stint in Los Angeles, had been a former chancellor in New York. Um, at age 83, he called me into his office, and he said, uh, Doc. I want you to do the work around instructional technology. And we had a huge task force that was really going to shake things up around how we were doing our work. And I looked at him and I'm about to tell him myself, but I said, sir, with all due respect, I'm not the technologist. And he looked me dead in my eyes and he said, but you're a leader and you know instruction. And that's what you need when it comes to technology. And so... For the work, when you say, why should it be on the plate, the the question is, why wouldn't it be? Because as you think about technology being ubiquitous and being an accelerator for good instruction – it would be foolish not to embrace that work. And so we really approached the work, put our elbows at the table, dug in and said, how do we infiltrate and saturate everything that we do and make sure that we leverage the right tools? And I think that's where the ISTE standards have really helped us because they really focus on what's happening instructionally and how we really create um, this global citizen who can think creatively and computationally. And these were all the things we needed to embrace in instruction.
0: So how have the ISTE standards been used in your district? I know you were the First, to adopt the ISTE Correct. standards for students, and I believe you're using them maybe more systemically than a lot of other districts. Can you describe that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so we were doing our task force work. We had over sixty different folks working with us from industry, from the school site, from our students uh, and their voices. And one of the things that happened is we were analyzing and studying all the best plans that were out there. And at the time, um, there was commentary that the standards were going to be refreshed for ISTE, and we had already started kind of scaffolding out what our different components of our task force recommendations would be. And we had an opportunity to Skype with the ISTE team at Carolyn Sakura, And as we were looking at those, um, sometimes I boldly put a statement out there. And in this case, I did. And I said, can we be the first district in the world to adopt the standards? And everybody just kind of looked at me. And fortunately, ISTE said... Yes. And so what was perfect about that is then it became really the boilerplate for how we wrote our plan, And one of the things that we've found is that they've been so readily embraced and we've really designed very thoughtful professional development around that. And I could share more about that with you as well.
0: I, I guess my question is, I, I mean, obviously I'm a, a fan of the ISTE standards. I think they have a, a lot of potential. Um, a lot of people have a hard time visualizing how you operationalize them. So any insight you can give us into that would be helpful.
1: Yeah, so I think part of the reason folks have a hard time operationalizing is sometimes we get into this technical mindset instead of this adaptive mindset. So folks want to put something on a to-do list. I did it, it's a problem, I solved it. And in fact, when things are adaptive, they require learning, they require collaboration, and those are things that are not solved, but they're natural polarities that you manage, just like stability and change, you need both. Breathing in and out, you need both. So as we thought about that, that and we thought about our learners, we designed um, several different suites. And in these suites, we have different uh, methodologies for how folks can enter into the ISTE standards. At a minimum, each of our learners for the awareness stage is spending up to six hours doing some deep dives and application into the work. And then what we've also done is created a platform um, on, a, on a system called Scalar. It's a free program. But what we do is we curate How are teachers embracing this work? Um, We bring out our change management model. We use um, the SAMR model also to help folks think about how teachers are making sense of this in their own district with their own teachers with the resources that they have. And so there's been some great um, great learning from that because it's teachers and leaders learning side by side. And again, going back to that idea of saturating the opportunities in the system so that folks can learn together and lead together.
0: So did you phase them in over time?
1: Yeah, we... um, we started with a group of practitioner schools. While we made it available to every single learner, um, we never deny learning in our district. <laughs> so everything is available. But what we did do is we said, let's take a continuum of experiences in our practitioner schools 1.0.
0: Sorry, and what is a practitioner ah, school?
1: Great question. So these are um, approximately 30 schools that applied and said, we want to learn this work together. Okay. And we uh, signed an instructional technology facilitator that would help develop a leadership team. And through that process, um, 1.0, they really looked at, you know, what is this, this new methodology look like in terms of the task force recommendations and the ISTE standards as part of that. And then practitioner school 2.0, we just deeply went into the work around computational thinking and we have practitioner schools 3.0 coming up, which are going to be our innovative disruptors. So we're looking forward to what comes out of this next round.
0: So you started with those schools and sort of, worked it out, the model in those schools, and then expanded? Is that-
1: yeah, so those were kind of the places where we'd incubate the ideas, okay. but we took the learning from those groups and spread that across the district. So we had different platforms where anybody can come see the work. And then, of course, our professional learning suites were available to every single school um, and every single learning group that wanted to join in.
2: Level up your digital teaching practice with ISTE U. A virtual hub of unique professional learning courses to help educators build critical skills for teaching and learning in a digital world. We've worked with leading educators and education organizations to ensure ISTE U provides engaging courses that put pedagogy first and provide incredible learning from the moment you get started. Graduate level credit is available. Learn more at isteorg isdu
0: So how do you get buy-in from those who are a little more reluctant about taking a new approach? Maybe they're intimidated by the technology itself. Maybe they just feel like they have good approaches and they've worked well in the past and and they're just not really motivated to change.
1: Well, I think the first thing we do is we don't call it buy-in. We co-construct it together. Creating it in a co-constructed uh, mindset, what happens is it, it takes away... Uh, perhaps when folks hear buy and they think that you're selling something to right. them. And so we're just saying, what do you need? And from what do you need in the classroom? Then we said, are these things that might match that need? And how can we co-develop this together? And since the ISTE standards were so fresh when we first got them and brand new, we really did need to co-lead, co-develop, co-construct together. And so I think out of that type of way of working, we were able to really get some synergy around it that started to transform the classroom. And I think the other thing is, you know, you take something like computational thinking. A lot of times folks think you need to have a device immediately to do the work, but it, it really shifted because it helped people think that it's a mindset. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of orienting your classroom. It's a way of shifting from being the sage on the stage to really the facilitator of learning. So a lot of those things are very complimentary and works that we were doing in other domains as well.
0: So what advice would you have for other leaders who are engaged in this work, who are trying to accomplish similar things to you?
1: I think the biggest piece of advice I can give is to be open-minded. And I think sometimes as leaders in these positions, we feel like we need to have all the answers. And so just like we're asking our teachers to be facilitators of learning – We need to be facilitators of leaders. And the reason I also say that is because we talk so much about opportunity gaps and achievement gaps, which are real, but we also have to talk about leadership gaps. And part of the reason we need to do that is because I think the job has become so overwhelming that we have to find ways to manage the right tensions that make a difference for students. And so when you come in being open-minded, realizing that you have a distributed leadership team that you're responsible for developing, you can really shift this work without having to be the expert, but the facilitator of expertise. And by embracing that mindset to do what's right for team kid, uh, you can really get some great results by honoring your entire system and not feeling that, you know, you're the sole leader out there by yourself championing for, for things like the ed tech world.
0: Yeah. I know we hear from a lot of uh, school leaders, their own leadership development is often overlooked.
1: Right. So you know, I put my university hat on because I was director of professional development and um, partnerships at UCLA. And one of the things we, we we would always do in our work is think about how do leaders teach other leaders? And so part of it is like, how do you create that network for them? Teachers have networks. Um, we create networks for our parents. But a lot of times um, there's this incessant information delivery that happens for leaders. And so we really need to make sure that we situate them as learners in this work as well. So
0: I know an issue in a lot of urban districts and rural districts is uh, Internet connectivity outside of school. Because it's such a difficult uh, problem, it's very challenging to, you know, extend the influence of school and the resources of school into people's homes. Um, sometimes districts rely on libraries or um, even fast food restaurants um, to provide students connectivity outside of the school buildings. Is this a challenge in your district and how are you approaching that?
1: This is still a challenge for our district. Uh, we've built a incredible infrastructure, but the question is what happens when students leave the brick and mortar? And this is really important for us, especially because we've also leveraged uh, a district-wide learning management system this past year, and we have close to over a million users already. Wow. So we want to make sure, absolutely, that they have all these resources at their fingertips once they leave the schoolhouse building. So we, we've done unique things like um, all of our students' um, Uh, on our magnet routes now have um, connectivity, at least on the bus to get to home. And then the question, well, what happens when you get home? And so we started with actually asking who doesn't have a home. And so we wrote several grants and worked uh, through different partnerships to make sure that first all of our homeless and foster youth were the first to get connectivity in whatever space they may be after the school day. Um, the next stage is we've actually put together some different resourcing to go out and make our pitch and and ask our civic leaders, our community-based organizations, our partnerships um, to come offer what they can to our communities. We've also worked with the California Emerging Technology Fund and that's been a really strong partnership because they, they do training with our parents around how to use the technology at home and really make it about not just the student but the whole family and then even extend to a broader sense of how do you support the entire community with this type of connectivity. So I think it's something a lot of us are still struggling with and we wish we had the answer today, but we know that this is journey work for us.
0: So how do you measure the impact of the work that you're doing with educational technology? It can be really hard to disaggregate, you know, what part of this was because of the technology? What part of this was because of the new instructional model? What part of this was just because we were paying attention to this school?
1: This is the wicked problem, right? (laughs) Um, So we get lots of questions around this, and it's been very hard for us to answer because everyone wants causation and correlation. Right. And everybody wants the silver bullet answer, and the reality is there is no silver bullet available. Uh, I love when Richard Collada talks about that technology is an accelerator. It can be an accelerator for bad instruction as well when not used well with great pedagogy and practice. So the accompaniment is really understanding what's happening with your professional development. And I think for us, one of the challenges is um, when the project first started, um, it was more of a touching the glass experience. Like if they have the device, everything else will magically come together. And I don't think all the digital tools were available at that time. Also to leverage what we really needed to have a complete support system. So when we went through our task force work, we really shifted that it was about leading with instruction. When we lead with instruction, we use our digital tools very strategically and in a very different mindset. Uh, So the, the touching of the glass or what you purchase doesn't lead your instruction. It's really having that deep instructional knowledge and really having that quest for deep learning that shifts the practice. So I think those were some considerations that have really, um, shifted then how we're going to analyze the work. So folks come up and they say, well, did your test scores change? Did teacher attendance change? Is there this one-to-one correlation around all of that? And I have to go back to all of those examples because it's messy and complex. Another challenge that we faced in our data is that while we started off with a one-to-one in some environments, schools uniquely on their own also started moving towards a one-to-one environment. So we weren't able to control all the variables around that as well. So moving forward, uh, what I can share is we have a great logic model that's going to look at not only some of the technical issues, but of course the adaptive issues around teaching and learning. And we're working with some different university partners and third-party organizations that will be analyzing our data and mining through that. And we're hoping that that will match some of the national trends that are starting to emerge as well.
2: If you're looking to connect with passionate educators who are transforming education, ISTE membership is the answer. Join ISTE to unlock access to vibrant educator communities and over 20 professional learning networks for year round PD and sharing of best practices. Membership includes access to EdTech Advisor, powered by Learn platform, a review and rating platform that helps you select EdTech tools that meet learning objectives. Working together, we're transforming teaching and learning. Learn more at isti.org/membership.
0: So, was is there anything that surprised you along the way as as you've been involved in this work? Something that you just didn't expect to to happen?
1: It's interesting in a really large system how quickly you can disturb it in a very positive way. So one of the things that we found that was really interesting, that's really been part of my um, heart and soul, is the collaboration with our Information Technology Division. And so um, our CIO, Shari Arkazi has just been an incredible um, servant leader to the Division of Instruction. And so whether it's been coming to him and saying, how do we personalize graduation, And he'll sit down and noodle through his drinking. And suddenly we have these great enterprise dashboards that we've created together, or we'll say, how can we get better, um, results around mastery learning. And suddenly we're adopting a learning management system that does great back features for teachers and shifts the way around how they're going to think about proficiency for students. Like these little disturbances without technology could not have happened in the accelerated way that they have. So I'm incredibly impressed by the partnering that's been happening as a result of kind of being able to translate these worlds together.
0: Yeah. And you make a really interesting point, which is the how key that collaboration is between the instructional side and the technology side.
1: Yeah, you can't live without that. Um it's like breathing in our system now. We have so many um sponsorship meetings. For example, every Tuesday we also do an instructional technology matters. We bring in procurement, legal, anybody who touches any part of this thinking needs to collaborate together. And uh, we even uh we kinda messed up our HR team, our human resources team, and put together hybrid teams that have dual reporting to both our divisions. And it was so smart because it got that technical and adaptive mindset together. And I think as a result of that, we've had one of the nation's best rollouts of the learning management system because we really had strong theory and practice and at the same time had really strong technical value added to the conversation.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating to me because usually, I mean, that one of the biggest silos that districts deal with is the technical versus the instructional and to blend them as tightly as you have is really unusual.
1: It's like breathing for us. You you just have to have it. I think every single day, if not multiple times a day, we're conversing. And so, for example, we have an instructional technology initiative that lives within the division of instruction that I said infiltrates and saturates every single content area. But then we created a personalized learning system team, which is this hybrid team that really focuses on what are the personalized tools that have a very um, strong technical connection that we need to have available to ensure things like security and privacy and just make sure, quite frankly, that things work and when they don't, that they can be fixed quickly uh, so that we don't delay any of the learning that takes place.
0: What would you say has been the most difficult aspect of this transition?
1: I think it's changing the mindsets of those who are not digital natives. Everybody wants the single answer, or to say that if we do this, X will happen. And so getting folks to really think beyond their current mindset and realize the opportunities that live in technology and at the same time have really courageous conversations around things like digital citizenship and what that means in a new era as we think about artificial intelligence, virtual reality, um, using it for civic engagement. You know, as we think about what's been happening across the country, it's also about digital citizenship and how we teach civic education. And so getting folks to realize that the conversation around social media and technology and how we teach is so closely linked to those issues. And if folks didn't necessarily grow up with those experiences or had access to learning about those experiences, um, those are conversations that we're missing, that we need to embrace and be bold about as as school leaders.
0: So you don't sound like a leader who's been worn down by the barriers and the difficulties and the labyrinthian regulations, those have to be part of your life. I know they are. How do you stay positive and optimistic? What makes you optimistic?
1: I think it's my team kid's soul. You know, every single morning, believe it or not, I wake up and I say, thank you for the opportunity to serve. And I remember many, many years ago, my Yoda moment, I call it. A great ethics teacher and leader who had retired was uh, volunteering at a school site that I was helping to support with some leadership coaching. And he looked across the long conference table and he said, Gibson, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to look in the mirror and know I'm doing right by children. He said, you didn't answer my question. Do you want to be a principal? Do you want to be a superintendent? What do you want to do? All things I've done, by the way. And I said, Um, I want to look in the mirror and do know that I'm doing the right thing for children. He goes, ah, oh, you didn't answer my question. So he left the room. Of course, he was frustrated. About eight years later, he showed up. Um, one of our schools in South central and he looks across the table and he's listening to me for about 20 minutes and he comes up at the end of the meeting and he says, um, you're doing exactly what you said you would do. And so for me, it's just this quest to do right by children. And I'm just feel absolutely blessed to be able to live that each and every day.
0: Thank you so much for spending this time with us.
1: Thank you for letting us share a little bit about our team Kids story.
2: Educators have lots of questions about EdTech. What's hard to find is reliable answers. Your EdTech Questions, the new podcast from ISTE, tackles critical questions at the juncture of EdTech research and classroom practice. If you're looking for reliable PD on critical ed tech topics, your EdTech Questions is for you. Subscribe today.